<clears throat> Good morning. So we're going to see if my voice holds up through this, this uh, lecture today. <clears throat> it is a casualty of having been at Foxborough yesterday um, <clears throat> and then staying up rather late watching a Red Sox game. On the whole, both, both uh, seem to have come through successfully, but my voice is a bit of a casualty of the events. So we'll see. But I'm going to sound a lot scratchier than normal. <coughs> so how, how many of you stayed up to the end of the game last night? Good. Excellent. I approve. OK. Um, last time, we spoke about the idea of cloning DNA to create libraries of molecules. And again, I think it's just one of the most clever th inventions because it's a completely new way to think about purifying molecules. Rather than purifying molecules by separating them based on their biochemical properties, it's purifying molecules by diluting them into single components and then amplifying each back up in its, from its own source. Uh, it's really quite a beautiful idea. And just to go over it, we take, say, human DNA, or we could take Drosophila DNA, or we could take yeast DNA, or we could take any other DNA we feel like. We cut it up in some fashion with a restriction enzyme. We'll use our favorite restriction enzyme here, ECHO-R1, which cuts into defined site, GAATTC. We take that, we add our insert DNA. These are referred to as inserts because they're going to be inserted into a plasmid. We take a plasmid vector. The plasmid vector here is a naturally occurring, although sometimes modified, piece of DNA that bacteria have that have an origin of replication that allow it to grow autonomously when put in a bacterial cell a selectable marker. The selectable marker, for example, ampicillin resistance or some other resistance. We add these, and then we seal up the pieces of DNA using the enzyme ligase. Ligase joins and joins, producing for us molecules of this sort. We make zillions of them in parallel in one test tube. We then transform them by adding these molecules to bacterial cells that have been appropriately prepared to tr be transformed. That is, their membranes have been treated in such a way that they're going to be most likely to suck up pieces of DNA. We then plate them on a plate at a density so that individual bacterial cells are well separated from each other. You try a bunch of different densities so you get one right. And you let them grow up, and every colony here as we discussed, is the descendants of a single bacterial cell carrying, ideally, a single plasmid. And that single plasmid, we know it's carrying a single plasmid because we were clever enough to put ampicillin or our other selectable marker on this plate. And so only bacteria that have picked up the plasmid are ampicillin resistant. And there you go. This is called a library. And at the end of the day, you may have a library that contains one plate of clones, or a library containing hundreds of plates of clones. 
Woo, we're going to see how we last through this. Um, now, a few people asked me at the end of the last lecture, well, you know, okay, but what about, what about the details? Is it really going to work like this? How come some of these plasmid molecules don't automatically get closed back up by ligase? Why is it that there's always an insert in the plasmid? And what's, what's the answer to that question? Sorry? There's not an answer, because sometimes ligase might close up that molecule. Now, that would be unfortunate, because it would mean that a bunch of the things in your library just had the vector without any insert. So, and these are details, but over the course of years, recombinant DNA specialists have worked out lots of cute tricks to make better and better libraries. I'll just give you an example of the kinds of things. Remember that in order to make a, to ligate DNA, we had a five prime here. We have a phosphate group here, three prime hydroxyl, phosphate here, double strand of DNA here. We have a phosphate here. We have a hydroxyl here, phosphate five prime, three prime. If ligase is going to come along, it turns out that ligase needs the phosphate there. In order to seal it up and make a chain. So, for example, suppose we were to arrange that the plasmid vector didn't have phosphates on its two ends then ligase would not be able to reseal the plasmid vector. That's a cute trick. This is just cooking, but I'm giving you an idea of the kind of cooking tricks we use in all this. So ideally, you would like an enzyme that can remove phosphate groups from the end of DNA. How are you going to invent such an enzyme? It already exists. That's the answer to all these questions. And bacteria have such an enzyme that can remove phosphate groups. So just remove phosphate groups. Uh, and of course, these enzymes are developed by bacteria because they need them in the course of, of DNA metabolism. And what do you think the enzyme is called? Phosphatase, of course. That's what, what happens. You use phosphatase, and you treat that, and it doesn't seal back up. Uh, now somebody will say to me, well, OK, but now I've got my vector here, and I don't have a phosphate on it. And I've got, so this is my vector DNA. And then I've got my insert DNA. And my, sorry, my insert DNA here, it has a hydroxyl here and a phosphate here. So the vector has no phosphate. But when it wants to, stick, when it wants to when ligase wants to attach an insert, it's got a phosphate here but not here. What's going to happen? Well, it turns out that ligase will seal up this, because it's got a phosphate, but it'll leave this one open. Now, is that a problem? Turns out, if you just transform it into the bacteria with that hole there on one strand, but not both strands, it's still a covalently closed circle on one of its strands. The bacteria will repair it. 
So you can take advantage of the bacteria's own DNA repair mechanisms to just throw the molecule in sealed up on one strand and let its repair mechanism. All of these tricks we play to our advantage. Someone else asked uh, after class, what happens if the gene I'm interested in studying has, uh, here's my gene, let's say, that I'm interested in studying. I take human DNA. I cut it with echo R1, so I have cut it at all the echo sites. Well, golly, what happens if my gene happens to have an echo site in it? Then my gene's going to be cut up into two pieces. Isn't that bad? What do I do about that? Do I know in advance if my gene has an echo site? Well, no, I don't, because I don't know what my gene is. I'm making a library of everything in the genome. So some genes will have it, and some won't. And I might not know the gene I'm looking for. So how do I avoid that? Sorry? Oh, you can try another enzyme. You can try BAM and Hindi and make a library with different enzymes. That's one way. That works. Another way, just to give you a sense of how, how facile molecular biologists are with this, Suppose when we add echo R1, we don't let the reaction go to completion. Suppose we run the reaction under conditions where it's somewhat inefficient. And instead of managing to cleave every echo site, on average it cleaves, say, one out of every three echo sites. You can do that. So that means you can arrange just by your reaction conditions to, on average, randomly cleave some, but not others. And they, these are called partial digestions. So it turns out that all of the kinds of things that people were asking me about afterwards, I was very glad people were thinking about how would this really work. There are tricks to get around all of it. And there's a whole fat book of protocols about if you want to make a library really, really carefully, how you would do that. How you make sure the vector doesn't reclose. How you make sure that you don't cut every site but random sites and things like that. And all of these rely on lots of enzymes and things that bacteria have already invented. So I'm just going to put these down as cooking tips. These are not really uh, necessarily, I don't care whether you know the details or not, rather that there exists a whole now 15 years, 20 years worth of ways to make the best possible libraries. And so it's quite routine now to be able to make good libraries. All right, so having made a library, the challenge is finding your clone. How to find your clone? The clone of interest. So I'm going to describe a number of ways that people have for finding a clone of interest. And here, of course, up to this point, the DNA could be zebra DNA, and it could be human DNA and yeast DNA, and it could be something that, that is an enzyme for arginine or this or that. But now we have to be specific. So let's suppose we go back to a problem we talked about before about, say, oxytrophy for a nutrient. So let's suppose that I have a bacteria, maybe even E. coli itself, where I have selected mutants that are oxytrophic for arginine. So arginine oxytrophs will grow on rich medium 
But on minimal media, they don't grow. But they would grow if I added arginine to that medium. They don't grow because they have a mutation in a gene. We know it's a gene because we cross together the mutant and the wild type. We show that uh, we can define this phenotype to be a recessive phenotype. We can map it in the yeast genome onto a particular, you know, by showing it has linkage to other phenotypes. That's all great. We can do classical genetics, a la Mendel, a la Morgan, a la Sturtevant. But how are we going to find the gene? How are we going to now use our tools of recombinant DNA to get physically in our hand the piece of DNA that encodes the gene that is defective in this strain? So I have a mutant bacteria. It can't make our gene. Can't grow in minimal medium. Somewhere in there, you know there's a mutation in the DNA sequence. How do we find it? What should we do? This is the whole point of recombinant DNA, to make this abstract notion of there exist genes, they transmit, all this kind of stuff, concrete. How are you going to find it? Any takers? Sorry? Run a gel. So I take DNA, cut it up, run a gel. I have all the DNA from the bacteria smeared out, and somewhere in that smear is the gene. So I take normal DNA from normal bacteria. I take mutant DNA. One nucleotide is different in the mutant DNA. I run them out, and I assure you they just look like a schmear. It's just a big schmear of DNA. It's hard to see one nucleotide difference out of the four million nucleotides of the E. coli. So how are we going to get this? This is good. We're thinking practically here. What else? Sorry? Sorry? Cut it up. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm assuming she wanted it cut up and run out on a gel. It still looked like a schmear. Forget the gel. Cut it up. Make a library. Okay, so we're going to make a library. Uh, let's assume now we have a library of different E. coli cells containing individual plasmids containing random bits of E. coli. How's that going to help? Splice it back in. How do I know if I spliced it back in? Ooh, that's an interesting thought. Suppose I were to make my library using wild type DNA. DNA from the wild type strain. So I'm going to collect, I'm going to make a library containing lots and lots of fragments of normal E. coli DNA. This is my library. I'm going to transform it into, what kind of DNA should I transform, what kind of bacteria should I transform it into, wild type or mutant? Who votes mutant? Who votes wild type? We'll go with mutant then. Mutant. We'll put it in mutant. So now, all of these mutant cells, each one is going to suck up a plasmid. We then are going to plate this and let colonies grow up. 
one of these colonies contains, so this, is, this mutant is Arge minus, and one of these colonies is going to contain the Arge plus gene here. How are we going to know which one? Sorry? How are we going to know which one has, has the Arge plus gene? Yes? So plated on minimal medium. If I plate it on minimal medium, what will happen to most of my mutant bacteria? They're not going to grow. But what's going to happen to the bacteria that happens to be lucky enough to have picked up the plasmid that contains the Arge plus gene? It'll grow. So whatever grows on minimal medium has been rescued. In fact, we've complemented the defect. Remember we talked about complementation tests? In a way, it would be the plasmid is complementing the defect. Bingo, that's it. So we can actually find that gene functionally. We plate on minimal media, and we look for growth. The only things that will grow have been rescued. So this is called cloning by complementation. because we are complementing the defect in this strain. All right. So any time I have a functional defect in my bacteria, I can find the gene for that functional defect by simply taking a total library from normal, from wild-type bacteria, transforming it into mutant bacteria, and looking for which bacteria has suddenly been rescued. Then I'll purify that bacterium, and I'll purify out the plasmid, and that plasmid will contain the DNA for the gene. That's pretty cool. Let's try another one. Suppose, yes? Oh, oh, so you're saying, okay, great. I've got my, my plate here, and I've said only one of these bacteria will grow. It's the one that happens to have within it the plasmid containing the ARGE gene. And you're, you're, you're fine with that, but you're saying, but how would I get that plasmid back out of the bacteria? Because the bacteria's got its own chromosome. And I'm making this big deal about how we purified stuff away from all this other DNA, but I've thrown this plasmid back into a bacteria that has all its chromosomal DNA. So who am I kidding? How are we going to purify out just that plasmid? If I could purify the plasmid, it would be okay, right? Turns out I can. Plasmids are little circles of DNA. Chromosomes are big pieces of DNA. It turns out that the coiling of the plasmid as a little circle gives it different densities and different physical chemical properties to big linear to big chunks of DNA which get broken up and so there are a bunch of tricks that allow me to get a pretty high purification of a plasmid against away from chromosomal DNA based on the different physical properties of a small circle versus big chromosome but good question otherwise you know how would i get that plasmid out but it turns out you can purify plasmids Good question. Okay.
So now, let's try another one. Next cloning expedition. We're going to go to the library. Uh, and we want to withdraw a volume from the library. And I want now, instead of bacteria that can't make uh, arginine, let's, ah, let's go with human DNA. Let's try human DNA. And I would like you to now please find the gene that encodes beta globin. Beta globin, of course, is, is the protein, one of the two proteins in hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a tetramer. It has uh, alpha globin and beta globin. This tetramer is the oxygen carrier in your blood. Carries oxygen. Beta globin happens to be the site of some very important mutations. We know that sickle cell anemia is caused by mutations in beta globin. We know that diseases like thalassemia are caused by mutations in beta globin. We and people knew this before they had recombinant DNA because they could study red blood cells. There's lots of beta globin in red blood cells. They could see that something was funny about the protein. They could even see that in sickle cell anemia, the protein had a different net charge and it would run differently. So they knew something was funny with the beta globin protein. All I want you to do now is clone beta globin for me. Can we do the same thing? Why not? Bacteria don't make beta globin. Bacteria don't usually make beta globin, so you wouldn't be able to. So what, what, what can we do? Um, well, we can make a library of human DNA, and we could throw it into the bacteria. So why don't we just select for a bacteria that makes beta globin? Could we do that? I don't know how. I don't see how. Do you see how? To, how would we select for? I mean, there we can see who grows without arginine, but like, how are we going to tell which bacteria has picked up beta globin? I don't know. Yeah. Use mammals. Ooh, we could take a mouse that did not make beta globin, a mouse that had, say, thalassemia. Isolate a naturally occurring mouse with a defect in beta globin. Then do injections of plasmids into mouse eggs. Grow up the mouse eggs by implanting them back into pseudopregnant females. Do this for 10 to the eighth individual plasmids with 10 to the eighth individual mice and look for the mouse that is rescued. Intellectually, you're absolutely right. It works. So that's exactly the cloning by complementation we talked about for bacteria, and you're dead on right that would work. Getting it funded is another matter. Because <laughs> it's, it's a hugely exp expensive experiment to shoot up each egg with this, but it could work. So we need another solution because we can't rescue the function in mice because it's just not practical to do so. Of course, if we could do this in mouse cells, maybe we could make it work in cell culture in mice. But let's suppose we don't have a cell culture phenotype. We just have an organismal phenotype. So it's not going to work to just do this by complementation. But good thinking, guys. This is good. So next trick we might have at our disposal is suppose because beta globin is so abundant in red blood cells, 
we have purified beta globin, and we've done amino acid sequencing of the protein by end degradation. You can work out the sequence of globin, and you can learn that beta globin has here at its amino terminal, bale, lu, sear, pro, ala, asp, lice, threonine, dot, 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 off to the carboxy terminal. Okay? If I knew that this was the amino acid sequence of the beginning, just the beginning, of beta globin, couldn't I figure out what that portion, that initial portion of the DNA sequence must be? Wouldn't this give me a clue? If I knew a little bit of the protein sequence, wouldn't this give me a clue about the, amino, about the nucleotide sequence that must be there in the bacteria, in the human genome to encode this protein. So a biochemist has purified the protein. A biochemist has studied the protein well enough to know some of its amino acid sequence. Can I infer the DNA sequence from the amino acid sequence? Or at least a little snippet of it. Sorry? Multiple possibilities. But an infinite number? No. How do you encode valine? Well, GT something. Something could be actually A, T, C, or G. What about leucine? That's a, either a T and a C in the first, or, or a T in the first position. There's always a T there. There you go. And it could be either of those. There's a T, C, anything, or an A, G, and a T or a C. Here, proline C, C, anything. Here we have a G, C, anything. We have an G, A, T, or a C. For lysine, it's an A, an A, either an A or a G. Here, it's an A, a C, and anything. Here, it's an A, an A, a T, or a C. Here, a G, a T, anything. An A, an A, A or a G. You're right, there are multiple possibilities. But it's not an infinite number, right? There is certain possible DNA sequences that might be encoded here. If I just, you know, work it out, see there are two choices here, there are four choices here, there's two choices here, there's uh, four choices here, there's two choices here, four choices, four cho uh, sorry, two choices, etc. If I just look at, let's take a segment of this. Let's try one, two, three, these six amino acids, okay? Four choices here. How many possible DNA sequences could encode these six amino acids in this order? Four times four times two times two times four times two. What is that? Two fifty-six. See, two two to the two to the four to the five to the six to the seven eight five twelve. I think it's about 512 possibilities. So 512 possible nucleotide sequences. Could work here. Well, 512 is not infinite. 
There's 18 bases of sequence, 512 possible 18 base long nucleotide sequences. Suppose, just suppose, that you knew which one it was. Now, you have to suspend your disbelief for a second. I'm not going to tell you how you might know, but suppose you knew which of the 512 it was. Okay? Could we use that little fact of knowing a stretch of about 18 bases of the sequence to find the clone? How could we find that clone in our library that has that 18 bases of sequence? Google. Google. <laughs> and of course, you are totally right, because as we'll come back to, that is the way you would do it today if it's the human genome, because the entire sequence of the human genome is on the web. But you might have an organism where it's not on the web. Um, but we'll come back, because of course, the Human Genome Project changes everything as to how you would approach this. Google is how you would do it today. Um, but in the absence of Google, or in the absence of the entire sequence of the human genome, but I'm glad you, you raise it, because it's absolutely right, how could I find the clone that has that specific 18 base pair sequence? Who has my 18 base sequence? Well, here's a trick. I could chemically synthesize an oligonucleotide that matches my sequence. An 18 base pair long oligonucleotide encoding my sequence. What I'd like to do is use this oligonucleotide as a chemical probe to wash over my library. And by washing it over my library, I'd like to see where it sticks. Now, that's kind of interesting. What do I mean by that? What I'd really like to do would be to kind of crack open all the cells of my library. And then the DNA would be sitting there. And I'd like to take my oligonucleotide probe for a little snippet of the gene and wash it over the library. And then by the amazing powers of Crick and Watson base pairing, it should stick to the right place. Could it do that? Turns out DNA, given time to wash around, will stick to its own complement. So that's the idea. Now, how in the world do I do this in practice? Hmm. So here's what you do in practice. In practice, let us grow our bacteria. Let's plate the bacteria on an agar plate on which we have put a membrane, a nitrocellulose filter, or some other kind of filter. A little, just imagine it being a piece of paper, filter paper. And I'm going to plate my bacteria on the filter paper that's here. I'll let them grow up because there's nutrients here. The nutrients diffuse through the filter paper. And then I have a piece of filter paper that I can pick up with my tweezers. And on that filter paper are bacterial colonies growing. So this is a filter. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this filter with these glistening bacterial colonies 
and I'm going to stick it in the autoclave, and I'm going to heat it up in the presence of wet heat, and the bacterial cells will crack open, and under these conditions, the DNA will tend to stick to the filter, because I've picked a filter that the DNA tends to stick to. And I'm going to wash this filter in a certain way that all the usual junk, some of the proteins and cell surface junk, washes off. And the DNA from each bacterial colony will stick. So now I have the DNA from each colony sticking to that spot. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my filter and I'm going to add my oligoprobe. This thing is now called a probe. I'm going to add the probe to the filter. And I'm going to put this in a, I need some sort of a hybridization device in which the probe and the, and the oligonucleotide and a little water can swish around. And here we use a, uh, a technical device called a baggie. Um, or some other kind of, basically, you know, a Ziploc bag, or you can heat seal it or something. Freeze meal, like a freeze. In fact, that's actually what's used in lab is freeze meal. Um, you can get these freeze meal bags. You toss your filter in. You you, you you squirt a little bit of your probe in, and you put it in the freeze meal bag, and then you put it in a water bath, and it swishes back and forth, and the probe just goes washing all over the place. And wherever the probe finds its corresponding cognate sequence by Crick and Watson it'll stick. And there you go. That clone contains your sequence. Now, we have a few problems here, don't we? What are some of the problems with this? Yeah. Sorry, what if it sticks what? So the probe, I thought this filter likes DNA. So why won't the probe just stick non-specifically everywhere? We treat it in some way so that after we've got the DNA adhering to it, it's now not going to stick everywhere. Good. Next problem. Well, but even before that, how, yes? No, we'll take the whole library. We've got the library scattered out on this filter. Good, so hang on to that one for a second. First off, do we even know where that clone is? How did we know where the piece of DNA stuck? Well, I mean, I drew it as red. But how do we know where that red spot is? Yeah? Oh, yeah, you see, the problem is if I just wash it over there, unless you have, you know, Superman vision, you're not going to know where that probe is. So you're proposing, first thing we better do is radioactively label the probe. So uh, let's put a radioactive label on the probe, okay, radio label, and it turns out you can radio label probes by using these enzymes that can add a radioactive phosphate group, etc. So now when it's radioactive, we put it here, and now we have a radioactive signal here. How are we going to find our radioactive signal? X -ray, we put it up against x-ray films, we take our filter, we dry it off, we slap it onto a piece of x-ray film, we let it expose overnight, we develop the x-ray film, and we'll see a black dot we better actually have taken some care to take a little radioactive pen and make a couple of fiducial marks around the corners, otherwise we're not going to know where our black dot corresponds to. But assume we've made a couple of dots so we know how to line up our x-ray film to our filter. Now we go back to our filter, 
we say, aha, there is a black dot corresponding to the location of the radioactive probe right there. That was, as you said, where the colony used to be that we wished we still had <laughs> because we cooked it in the autoclave, which is too bad. So what should we do about that? So if I did it one colony at a time, I would know exactly which one it came from, but it could take a long time. Sorry? So plate it first onto a plate of agar, take a filter and press the filter up against the plate and make a copy of it. Replica plate that. Turns out that'll work. There are two different approaches, and both of you are right. One approach is to replica plate it. Plate it on a, on a first on a normal plate and lay a piece of filter on top of it and a little bacterial stick in the same patterns, peel it off and you now have it. Alternatively, now in the presence of robotics, you can use a robot to pick these colonies into microtiter plates and you can screen the individual wells by stamping them onto a filter, things like that. And, and frankly, that's how we do it now. If we want to screen the human genome, we set up a library with a few tens of thousands or hundred thousand such things and we can read off from a grid which one it was, and we go back to our master microtiter plates where we have them. But either way, we need to have a living copy of the library. But that's how you do it. So now we're in business. We have a living copy of the library. We make a filter containing that. We cook the filter in the autoclave. We add a radioactive probe. Wherever it sticks, it matches by the wonders of Crick-Watson base pairing. We're in business. Yes? Oh, so now there was this issue. I mean, how do I know that, that that sequence doesn't appear multiple times in the human genome? That's one issue. So I'm going to have to pull out each of the positive hits I get and check it out. I'm going to have to analyze the clone, because just knowing that it hybridized to that might not tell me it's the beta globin gene, but at least it's probably a good start, right? I've narrowed it down. But yes? Oh, wait a second, right. We said there were 512 possibilities. And I said, bear with me. Let's suppose we knew which one it was and we used it. Uh, well, how are we going to know which one it is? Well, we could do the experiment 512 times. And one of them would work. That's lousy. We could go and make 512 oligos and simultaneously throw them in the same meal bag. That actually works. How do you make 512 oligos? Boy, how do you make an oligo, by the way? To make an oligonucleotide, there's very fancy chemistry that's been developed for which someone won a Nobel Prize. Nowadays, of course, if you need an oligo made, how do you do it? Go to the catalog, that's right. In fact, you can go on the web, type in the sequence you want, and there's a machine that'll make it, you can have it tomorrow. So it turns out, that's how you make oligonucleotides today. They're good machines for it. Um, and it turns out that if you wanted to, so what you do is you type into the computer the following. You type in, please make me an oligo that starts, put a C in the first position, a C in the second position. Now, what are you going to put in the third position? 
just tell the computer to put in a random mix of all four. Then a G in this position, a C in that position, and then a random mix of all four. Then I put in a G and an A, and then put in a 50-50 mix of T and A. In fact, in one synthesis, by telling the computer to just add a mixture at certain steps, it'll simultaneously synthesize a mixture of all 512 possibilities for you. So actually, a single synthesis will suffice to get a mixture of the 512. You take your mixture of the 512, wash it over the filter, et cetera. Now, your point still stands. How do we know that there's not something else in the genome that has this, et cetera? But at least we can find all the specific positives associated with this, and we can analyze them further, as we'll talk about next time more about how you actually analyze them. And of course, whether 18 is the right number of bases, or you might prefer to have a longer probe, or, or shorter probes, or two probes, these are all the cooking tips molecular biologists worry about. But given a sequence, of, a, of an amino acid, uh, amino acid sequence, you can infer, although with redundancy, a, pro, a nucleotide sequence. Given a nucleotide sequence, you can make an oligonucleotide probe. Given a nucleotide probe, you can wash it over the filter. You can find the colonies that have it. And therefore, you could clone by hybridization. So we'll call this one cloning by hybridization or cloning by sequence. Okay? Now, there are other ways to do it. or by sequence here. Now, of course, as someone correctly noted, if the entire sequence of the human genome has been already sequenced, as it has right now, if you knew the amino acid sequence, you could do this hybridization not using filters and radioactive probes, but just doing it in silico. You can do it in the computer, and that will work as well. So now, let's do the next one, last uh, cloning expedition. I'd like to clone the gene for Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis or something like that. Cloning a disease gene. Such as Huntington's disease. It's a dominantly inherited disorder. Passed to some of the offspring. causes a brain degeneration that onsets typically in the fifth decade of life. Let's clone that gene. Can we do it by method number one, cloning by complementation? No, because we don't have a bacteria that has Huntington's disease. We don't have mice that have Huntington's disease, maybe. We can't, and, even, and we can't certainly shoot up people and try to rescue the phenotype and all that. That's not going to work. Number two, how about doing it by number two? Let's just get the protein for Huntington's disease get its amino acid sequence, and then look up, its, you know, find its nucleotide sequence. Pretty good. What's the protein for Huntington's disease? Huntase. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's called Huntington, it turns out. Um, but at, at the time that people went off trying to find the gene for Huntington's disease, I'm afraid they didn't know. They had no idea what the gene was that caused Huntington's disease. That was the point. They wanted to use molecular biology to find the gene when they didn't even know the protein. So we can't use our method number two. So how are we going to find it? The disease does lead to degeneration of nerve cells. Study nerve cells. So we could take brain biopsies from patients who have died of Huntington's disease. And people did that. 
but they, you know, nerve cells that die, a lot of stuff goes on. All sorts of proteins go wrong, and you know, it, it's stuff. The problem with, with studying tissue from people who have a disease is that it's diseased tissue. And just because you see something wrong doesn't mean it's a cause rather than an effect of the disease. So that's why we really want to find the gene and find its mutation, because we know then that's the primary cause. But how are we going to do that? We don't know its sequence. We can't rescue it by complementation. As a pure geneticist, what can we do? Yeah, we know the sequence of the human genome. So we just sequence the entirety of the genome of somebody with Huntington's disease and compare it to normal. That actually may become a reasonable way to do things, but the first sequence of the human genome cost a couple billion dollars. Doing it again it would be cheaper, it would spend about $30 million or so, but it's pricey. Also, there would be a lot of genetic variation, just random, meaningless polymorphism between individuals. The human genome differs between any two people by about one letter in a thousand. So we would see about three million differences between a person with Huntington's and the wild-type reference sequence on Google. We wouldn't know which one causes it. Suppose you have a family tree. How could we use it? Compare the children and the parents and the, that's, a, that's right. What does a geneticist do with a family tree? What did Sturdivant teach us? Genetic mapping. Suppose we were to study a family tree of individuals with Huntington's disease. And suppose on the chromosome where the Huntington's disease gene lives, we were to look at genetic markers. Could we do genetic linkage analysis? Genetic linkage analysis that would allow us to know that there was a marker here, some kind of a marker, a DNA marker, a DNA variation, that was co-inherited with, that showed linkage with Huntington's disease. We could do that just by finding that across a family, there tended to be very little genetic recombination between this marker and Huntington's disease. Now, how would we know to look here? We wouldn't. We'd try markers all over the genome. Next chromosome. Next chromosome. If we tried genetic variations all over the human genome, we would eventually find that some genetic markers in the human genome tended to be co-inherited along with Huntington's disease. It turns out that that's enough. This will tell us approximately where this unknown gene must live. Here's the portion of the chromosome where the unknown Huntington's disease gene lives. Here's a genetic variant, and here's a genetic variant, a marker, that shows correlation. Maybe there's only 1% recombination here and 1% recombination here. And that's the powerful thing about Sturdivant's idea. It works in fruit flies. It works in humans. If I have any genetic variation and it's 99% correlated or only recombines 1% of the time, it tells me that this unknown gene must be nearby. So I can use this genetic marker 
as a DNA probe to wash over a library to get a big piece of DNA from this region. I can take this piece of DNA and use it as a probe, a radioactive probe, to get an overlapping piece of DNA. I can use the end of this DNA as a probe to wash over a library and get the next piece of DNA. And I can do the same thing here. Once I have any piece of DNA that's even vaguely in the neighborhood, I can use it as a probe to wash over a library and get a piece of DNA, use it to get the next piece, the next piece, the next piece, in a process that was called chromosomal walking. That gives me a series of clones that I know must cover the region for this unknown gene. I then begin to analyze them, and I say, let's look at some more genetic markers. A genetic marker a little closer, and a little closer, and a little closer. Which ones show perfect correlation with Huntington's disease? And that narrows me down to a small number of clones that must contain the gene, even though I had no idea in advance what that gene was. This is called cloning by position. And that's a very powerful technique of genetics, because you don't need to know in advance what's wrong with a disease gene. You first figure out where it is, and then you get the clones to figure out what it is. So this actually works. Now, the process of getting the next piece and the next clone and the next clone is unbelievably boring and tedious. And for Huntington's disease, this process took nine years. Of course, now, how would you do it? Let's go to the web, because with, with all of this process of the human genome, you've got all these clones laid out already. And so the work that used to take years now is once you have a genetic marker that's close to Huntington's, you can just look up all the clones in the neighborhood, and actually all the sequence in the neighborhood. So this process has gone from nine years to if you had to do this again, you could get that region for Huntington's disease in a couple of weeks. Now the question is, how do you analyze that region? How do you know what's in that region? How do you know what the genes are that are in that region? And that's what we'll talk about next time.